Hello again. Um, so yeah, we're just about to start. Now, you wouldn't know this from looking at this incredibly professional setup with Hamish on the sound and Tom and Christian helping us set up the room. But when we first started doing this podcast, the one thing we could not work out how to do was all clap in unison. <laughs> Basically, we're all upstairs in a meeting room here and we're all recorded on like USB microphones plugged into our laptops, which meant that it was crucial that the sound was synced up beforehand. And you try getting three I would say intelligent, tech, technologically savvy people to clap at the same time as each other. Tragic. So, to start off tonight and celebrate what a lovely evening we're all going to have, I thought we'd get everybody to try and all clap one time at the same time. So, now we had some disagreement about this in the past. One, two, three, clap. So that's going to, after three, we did clap on three, it was a big thing, it took me five minutes to edit out the podcast, it was a mess. So, one, two, three, you know what, that's pretty good. That, all we needed was about 30 people staring at us and we got it. Let's try it again. One, two, three, nailed it, right. Now let's try a bunch of them in a row to welcome the hosts of the series. <laughs> One, two, if you want, psychological boost. One, two, three. <laughs> It's a cheap trick, but it never fails. Um, so hello, and welcome to the Cine Skinny Podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for coming down for this edition of the pod. We are live from Codebase in the shadow of the glorious Edinburgh Castle. Uh, this is the film podcast from the team behind the skinny. It's me, Peter Simpson, with Annie Berrios. Hello. Uh, Lewis Robertson. Hello. And Jamie Dunn. Hello. <laughs> Smooth. Um, so yeah, before we get started, a massive thanks to Codebase for giving us the space. Thanks to Tom and Christian from The Mag for helping with all the setup. And thanks to Curate It for sponsoring tonight's event. Um, there really is not much time for introductions. I'm wasting time already <laughs> with all that clapping. <laughs> Crap. So we're going to get right into it. We've got three films to talk through. And we've also got an interview with the fantastic Will Anderson later on. So I think we should probably just get right into it and talk about the opening film of the Edinburgh International Film Festival, which was After Sun. And I believe Jamie is going to take the lead on this because we have a very special guest on the panel. It's the fantastic Chun-Lin Tam. Hello. Now the, now the awkward part is because we have four microphones, we're all going to have to pass them down, but it's audio so I don't think anyone's going to notice. <laughs> so if you pass yours to me. Oh, literally. All righty. So take it away, Jim. Yeah, so the first film we're going to talk about, as Peter said, it's After Sun. Uh, it's the beautiful debut film from Charlotte Wells, who's uh, a very promising Scottish director. It's uh, set towards the end of the 90s. It follows 30-year-old Callum, who's played by the very, very sexy Paul Mascal. <laughs> More on that later, I'm sure. Um, 
Uh, and it also stars this amazing newcomer, um, uh, Frankie Corio, who uh, plays 11-year-old Sophie. Their father and daughter, who are on a package holiday in a kind of low-rent resort in Turkey. Now, the holiday itself is short of instant, but, you know, so they're just like having lazy days by the pool. But inside, however, Callum and Sophie are going through the most kind of life-altering emotions. Um, After Sun was the opening film of Edinburgh Film Festival, so I thought it was a great place to start the podcast. And I might turn to, we haven't actually prepared this, but (laughs) maybe you want to start as the guest. Maybe you want to let us know what your thoughts so I think my primary thoughts are everyone's primary thoughts here and just throwing out a common thread here. Paul Mescal is incredibly sexy in this movie. So sexy. And this is actually his only his second film, I think. And his first film, which is um, in The Lost Daughter, like they keep on putting him in these like booty shorts on the beach. <laughs> and if that's kind of the typecast that they're going to go for with him, I fully support this. Um, so yeah, I, I've heard a lot. I heard a lot about this film, as I'm sure everyone else had and it came out of Cannes with like so much love and hype behind it. I was really excited to see it. Um, I was actually surprised at my own reaction to the film because hearing people talk about it, I thought it was going to be this immensely kind of emotionally cathartic watch. Whereas for me, I felt that it was incredibly withdrawn and subdued. That doesn't mean it wasn't emotional, but in a completely different vein, I think. Um, And to me, it managed to really capture that feeling of being unable to seek catharsis, even through filmmaking, which we can, you know, always identify as one sort of art form to pursue, you know, self-expression, a pursuit of a certain truth, of re-narrativizing your life as well. But it kind of pointed to that in a similar way, I think, to like the souvenir, um, that no matter how much of yourself you can put into a film, like you can still be left feeling like unfinished, incomplete. And I think that feeling is something that's incredibly difficult to capture on screen. And I found that really, really striking, just like the lack of catharsis, I think. Yeah, yeah I think that lack of catharsis is so like well put and so interesting because it feels such a like fragmentary film. Like it feels like it's constantly like moving towards something and reaching for something. And that something never quite manifests or it kind of does and then it doesn't. And you're just left with like such a, like feeling of sadness. Like I remember the film, like the credits went up and you could just hear the whole cinema go like, (gasps) like they were like sobbing, it was wild. And like the whole skinny team met and we were just like staring at each other that we had to go and party with Paul Mescal. And it was just like weird, (laughs) it was really hard. Um, He is so sexy, but he's like sexy in a very sad way, which is potentially sexier, unfortunately. But it is, yeah, it's such a, like, oblique film. Like, it's kind of shot in this, like, very film, like, on... Is it 16 millimeter that it's shot on? And so it's, like, very grainy. um, And it's just very, like, yeah, oblique, that things will be, like, happening, but then audio from something else will be playing over, or a memory will be happening, and it happens twice, and it's, like, in a different way. And just the sense of, like, you're trying to capture something, or you're trying to remember something, and you can't, and that's just devastating. I know, I was so sad. (laughs) Yeah, the atmosphere of the film is almost exactly what it's like to look back on your sort of naff childhood holidays. And, um, you know, we're pretty much just sort of trapped there with those characters. Like, I can't stress enough how few sets there are for a film this length. Um, the like days blur into one another, and there's some really particular techniques to kind of carry you between scenes. Like, uh, the one I always think of is the... Um, 
the buzz of the video camera that plays in one scene and carries over to the next, like that's a very material example of scratching that nostalgia itch. But more generally, it's just that like um, sort of strange short scenes that we don't grasp the meaning of that appear only for a little while. They're quite dreamlike and, and sometimes a little bit nightmarish. And then we're just right into another scene. And so many scenes start with them just sitting by the pool, staring at the sky. Like it really feels like there's absolutely nothing to do on this holiday, which is kind of what the package resorts are like. Well, that's the thing. It's a film where nothing really happens, but everything's happening at the same time. You've got two people who are going through this intense experience, but different experiences. So you have a young woman who's figuring out her sexuality for the first time. She's getting interested in boys and girls and she's seeing the older teens at the pool having a lot of fun and she's kind of curious, but also a bit apart from it, she's not old enough to join in. And then you have the father who's also going through his kind of inner turmoil. Um, and, and what I love about the film and what I think makes it a kind of really masterful piece of work is like none of this is spelled out in the dialogue. It's a film where everything is expressed visually, you know, or through the performance. So at no point does Callum, who's, who's Paul Maskell's character, does he ever say, I'm depressed, I'm feeling, I'm feeling down. And I think in a lesser film, or a less sophisticated film, you do have had a scene where he confesses to someone uh, by the pool that, oh, I'm not feeling great. But this film is just so confident in just doing it all visually, or, or just doing it all through performance, which I, I was really impressed with. You know, and he's, he's a character who's trying to express this feeling of inner calm, you know? So all, I don't know who's all seen the film, but, um, you know, he's a character who, he does Tai Chi in the morning, you know? He, he <laughs> reads books on meditation. He's that kind of lad, you know, who, who, who projects this kind of inner calm, but then he does these strange things. He'll walk out in front of a bus without looking, or he'll go scuba diving without having the right um, certificate. You know, he does these very reckless things and you'd never quite know what's up with him until the end of the film. And I just love that as a film that, it just set, it's seen so much without seeing anything. Um. I remember you coming back from that festival in the Czech Republic, was it? And you compared it to The Lost Daughter. Like, do, which one do you like more? Well, it's, it's actually, I said someone else had compared to The Lost Daughter, and I think, for me, this is a much stronger film. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think we should also... The thing is, it's a very naturalistic film, but it's just filled with these little oblique unusual moments as well. It's incredibly experimental um, yeah. in a way, and it's, it, it surprises you, because initially for the first half hour watching it, the first time I watched it, I wasn't exactly sure what the fuss was about, to be honest, because it, it, it came out of Cannes with such buzz. And I'm thinking, well, this is like a, a very nice film about a father and daughter. It's very beautifully shot, very atmospheric, but it, it's not kind of giving me the magic that I heard. And then towards the end, these sort of, and she, she does such interesting things with time, where uh, time sort of collapses. Uh, she does this interesting with memory where we realize at some point that this, um, the camera shots, the, the camcorder from the film, from the holiday that creep in, we realize that this is a woman looking back on her holiday. So it's, it's all a kind of memory piece. Um, and that sort of only creeps up on you. And, and I think once you realize what's happening, you, you're kind of in there already and you're, you're loving it. It's a film with like no plot really, just in the sense that, um, again, it, it's these two characters carrying these two performers carrying the entire atmosphere. And, and you know, like you said, uh, Shanlin, like Paul Mescal is very subdued, right? He's, he's very, a bit repressed. He's a bit sort of wooden and quiet in that way that dads usually are, but he contrasts so much with uh, his daughter, Sophie. So while he's 
like reading books on Tai Chi and meditating every morning and stuff like that. She's seeking out thrills. She wants to like go parasailing. She plays this like motorbike video game at the arcade. And um, it's a really interesting way to characterize uh, uh, like maturity in youth where he's trying to like discipline his mind. He's trying to live maturity the best way he possibly can. And she's just looking to like grow and do stuff. So they feel like such different characters. Um, but they still somehow feel related. They still feel like they're on the same wavelength. They sort of laugh cheekily at the same jokes. And, and that's why I think that while it's a bleak film, it's not necessarily like just a completely sorrowful film because as hard as it is and as much as you see that the relationship has flaws, like you, you never doubt that they do love each other. Mm. And I think also, I think because everyone fancies him, like a lot of the conversation has been on Paul Mascal, um, but Francesca, Francesca Cari is also so fucking, can I swear? Yes. So <laughs> fucking good. <laughs> like she's so excellent. And I actually think it's been such a good year for child performers who are usually the most annoying people on camera. <laughs> um, but not this year, baby. They're actually really good. So she's like so great, like really, really naturalistic, just very like, intrepid and she just wants to like live life and you just see it all like flit across her face because it's not a dialogue heavy film and i think the two of them together and when they when the director came to like introduce the film and then paul mescal and francesca were also on stage um and they didn't say anything but he just like had his arm around her and it was really cute that's not about the film it was just like really nice did you notice they're also wearing the same shirt yeah that was, that was so cute so charming <laughs> yeah it's just a beautiful film before we gab on is there anything else you want to include um, I, I was just gonna like say that I think, but going back to that whole idea that I think the film has really managed to capture a very difficult emotion. And when we talk about films about parents and children, you know, we think like, you know, oh, you got your like yeah, Ladybird, you got Lost Daughter. Like you have like this whole canon of films about extremely fraught relationships between parents and children. And I think that's hard to do as well. But something that After Sun does is probably even harder, where the relationship isn't necessarily fraught. But it's that kind of chasm of time that you're looking at about that recognition that you don't actually know this person who you've spent so much of your life with and that you can spend all of your time with them, kind of sitting with them by the pool, hearing everything that they have to say. And you can look back on that in like 20 years and still realize that those memories themselves can be refracted through a di completely different prism of understanding. And for me, it, I, I, I think it really captured the feeling I get when I look at my parents' kind of like old photo albums of their honeymoons and I was like, oh shit, like I've stolen their youth from them. Like it just yeah. <laughs> made I, I, me feel so guilty. I was like, you looked so happy before you were tied down with like all of this stuff. I think it really will make anyone out there like reflect on their upbringing and take them back to being a child, even if, you didn't go on like a Thomas Cook all-inclusive holiday in the Mediterranean in 2004, like I did. <laughs> yeah, it's also a film that I've found men have uh, really got emotional about. Like, you know, I, I cry at everything, so I was I was not surprised that I cried at this film. I cry at uh, Forrest Gump and like absolute sentimental quad, uh, quads wallop. But uh, but yeah, people who are kind of I kind of think of as kind of like proper proper guys, proper lads, were crying at this movie, and it's like I think that shows you something about this film, it's, it's talking about things that aren't often talked about. And Charlotte Wells has done such a good job in sort of talking about that idea of male depression, but the, like male um, 
Mainly in a tickly say, that's, mm. that's ironic. I can't say that word. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you know, like, like you know, men cannot talk about their emotions. And this is a man who's who's fits that category perfectly. Especially Scottish men, I think is it's it's a thing as well. And it's also, I think, very telling that this is a film, uh, an after party where tons of people were talking about it. Usually at after parties, people just want to get drunk and have a party. But everyone I spoke to was desperate to talk about this film because it's just full of such little mysteries that people wanted to unpick. So yeah, I, I feel like uh, yeah, it's a real kind of success story. And, and like in, regarding that like male inarticulation, by the end I was just like gripping my seat, being like, "Please talk to each other." Like it like gave me goosebumps. Their like little interactions, even if they didn't say much, because they were so packed with meaning. It's a really good film. It's just a very good film. <laughs> Is there anything else to say? It just rocks. It's so good. Yeah, it's awesome. Any other comments, <laughs> Shanlin? Final word. No, actually, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Paul Mescal is hot. What, yeah, what else do yeah. you need to do? Paul yeah. Mescal is super hot in this film. Like Go and see so it. so hot. Yes. Jesus. All right. <laughs> so, After Sun is... So, After Sun had its premiere at Edinburgh. It's out in UK cinemas on the 18th of November. So, set your hot guy alarms now. Uh, and thank you so much to Chun Lin for coming on. Before we move on, something that I um, something that I said on the last podcast and was dismissed immediately. I said if the Cine Skinny had a chance to meet Paul Mescal at the film festival, we would do it. And Anahit said, "No way. There's no way that's happening. No way." <laughs> Chun Lin. What's Paul Mescal like? <laughs> I, uh, I got to take a photo with Paul Mescal because Rory like stage mothered me. I was like, I can't do it. I'm too embarrassed. And Rory was like, go. <laughs> no, we'll take the photo. He's very lovely. He's a very sweet guy. He's very just some guy energy. To be fair, when I said that none of us would do it, I was thinking of the 30 pluses in the room. But the key was sending in the intrepid youth. <laughs> they will go and talk to Paul Mescal. <laughs> We've learned so much already. Um, and now to learn more, segue, um, we're going to talk about another film and we're going to bring on another guest. So will you all please welcome to the stage bit the fantastic uh, Rory Doherty. Hello. Rory. Yeah. What's Paul Mescal like? <sighs> Where to begin? Um, well, first of all, I'm up here. I just want to address that the reason they don't have the guests up on together is that we have mad beef with each other. <laughs> we do not get on, and so having us even in the same room is pretty risky. <laughs> Sorry I didn't get the MacBook memo also, that everyone here has one except for me. Um, Paul Mescal is lovely. I'm my mother's son, so I will talk to any celebrity. Um, and I got like five people photos with Paul Mescal, uh, which was really nice. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's nice. Is that what I'm here to review? Uh, no, there's more to come. But <laughs> we just wanted to make sure, two for two so far on guests talking to Paul Mescal. Lovely lad, good stuff. So the next film we're going to talk about is Special Delivery, which is, yes, you can. <laughs> I had two and didn't think it <laughs> was a problem. So from a quite sad introspective film to a film with lots of fast driving and people getting battered. So Special Delivery uh, is a Korean kind of action thriller it stars uh, Parasite's Park So Dam, who was the daughter in the kind of main family in Parasite. She plays 
a scrapyard employee called Yun Ha, who has a kind of side gig as a kick-ass, extremely fast delivery driver. What kind of deliveries does she do, Lewis? Special deliveries. Thank you. <laughs> they uh, practice this so much in the office, you have to know. Two takes, then we had it. Um, so Yun Ha ends up taking receipt of a special package in the form of So Won, who is a son, a kind of young son of this baseball player who's blown the whistle on some match-fixing and illegal betting. The kid has a fob for the bank account of the dodgy guys involved, who are also, as it happens, corrupt policemen, and it goes on from there. It is very much this kind of film. Uh, and Rory, is it a good example of this kind of film? Um, I'm going to be honest, I struggled with this film. This is the kind of film I love. Even if you described the plot to me, it'd be the kind of film I love. I love some Korean genre fare. I love really slick action and well-edited stuff with great performers being really fun. The problem is it's also one of my least favorite kind of films where I watch it and all the pieces are there, but everything is slightly undercooked. Um, I, 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 the, the way the plot goes, you know, the, there's great set pieces, there's great sequences of action. The Park Sodan is uh, amazing in that role. She gives a better sort of getaway driver performance as we've had from other big talent in the last 10 years. Um, but the problem is that I didn't feel like there was, a, there was a lot of effort. Maybe it was just writing and structural level, but at a certain point, it just started to lose me, maybe about halfway through. And I wasn't getting the fun I should be getting out of that really great dynamic between a kid and a getaway driver. I wasn't getting the sort of, the sort of venom and bite you get from obviously corrupt cops or something like that. Um, and then there's like a Terminator man in it who's, who's hired to come in and murder people. And then I didn't feel like the, there was enough use or the best use of that. So it's not a bad film. Um, it just really sort of disappointed me because I wanted it to be pretty much better across nearly every single category. Would you say this driver film was middle of the road? Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I'm going to go. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. I, like, the thing is, I thought it had incredible style. Um, like, I, th I think the, like, the fourth shot of the film is the key in the ignition and the techno music cuts in. And then just like, it's such a cool vibe. It's so, so stylistic, so suave, but also gritty. But like, it just starts using a lot of the cliches from this like driver action subgenre thing. Like the railway crossing with the barriers coming down. I'll let you guess how that ends. Like, um, but you know, I, I don't mind you know, driver films after drive or baby driver. It's just that like if they're I'd like to do the I'd like to see them explore something new. And by that I don't mean like the fast and the furious thing of like this time they're in space. <laughs> this time they're like going back in time or something like that. Yeah, that was another sort of problem I, I realized where it wasn't that it was like initially I was like this feels a little slick. This feels very, very polished. And then I was like that's not really the case because there's lots of Korean movies I've seen that have been slick and polished in the style but like haven't felt the same way as this. And I want to say it sounds really harsh but I want to say that this film felt a bit like plastic and hollow to me. It didn't have a lot of the sort of like real like like core emotions that uh, or, or or like really striking characters that, that, I, that I would get from, from uh, a better version of this film really. 
So I had a fucking excellent time with this film. (laughs) (laughs) I think the key is, so I was meant to watch this last night, like a sensible person, and then I went out till three in the morning, and then I watched it at 9 a.m. this morning, and it was great. Like, it really woke me up. The techno soundtrack (laughs) kicks in. You're having a great time. There is not a crumb of originality in this film, but I think that kind of works. Like, you really know what you're here for, but it does it with, like, such charm and such energy that like simply who cares? Who needs originality in filmmaking? Not all the time. So I really, really liked it. I thought Park So Dam was so hot as well, just like putting it out there, but like had so much charisma, just felt like she had so much presence. And maybe it is that kind of after effect of Parasite and kind of thinking about her in that context and she's so good in that film as well. But I just thought she like really pulled it together. I really liked how there were kind of stakes in it in some ways. And I agree with you that like some of it feels like it hits the genre beats and you know what's happening. But so there's a little kid in this film as well. And there are these scenes sometimes where the kid is just like screaming and crying because something really awful is happening. And you're like, oh, that's really fucked up. And you like really feel it in a way that I think a lot of like Western action has become so sanitized and so like by the books that you just don't feel like anything, that anyone is feeling anything. And I really felt with this that they were. So I had a great time. Yeah, I, I had a pretty good time with it as well. I think one of the things is it follows a lot of genre tropes, but it does do some very interesting things. One of my favorite bits is an extremely low speed getaway when uh, Park Sodam <laughs> yeah. is one, it's like the introductory shot of like, I'm dead good at driving, I'm going to prove it. Does this big chase through these back streets, gets away from somebody, and then puts the car in reverse, turns off the ignition, and just very slowly rolls away. <laughs> it's the bit from The Simpsons where Homer just backs into the hedge, but as like part of an action film. It's great fun. And if Homer was a car. Yeah. <laughs> was that an episode of The Simpsons? I don't know. I'm sure it will be at some point. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and there's some really like, inventive stuff in the kind of more you know, physical action stuff. There's a lot of people do get battered in this film. But it's got all the kind of genre tropes, like the main character has ridiculous plot armor, so they cannot really be harmed. They'll walk into a room full of goons and be like, right, I'm going to get all these guys. (laughs) Um, There's all the stuff of, like, there's prep montages, even if the Mm. montage is literally just saying, take this car and drive. Like, it's 20 minutes up the road, you'll be all right. (laughs) But they'll be pointing at the map, be like, do I go here? It's like, yeah. Like, that's the way. What the, um, and, yeah, the whole thing of, like, the lead character has a pet, so you know they're in touch with their softer side. Mm. But also, they can steal cars. Really good. It's very sexy. There's, that's what I'm there's, there, there's, there's little moments which I think are, like, just to, like, or even, like, whole scenes which work so well. There's, there's uh, someone that, uh, gets, like, smashed out a window with a car. Uh, which is great. Um, <laughs> number two, um, uh, there's like a whole set piece of, I think that's when you were, you were talking about the kid crying and that's used for tension in a sort of hotel room setup, which is a fantastically tense sequence. And then there's, a, there's just a move, there's just a stunt when they're all fighting at the end uh, where Park Sodan like is picked up but then uses her momentum to jump back down and body flip a man three times the size of her over her head and like I saw God like it's <laughs> it's so you get this like rush when you're watching this stuff and they don't they don't skimp on any of that stuff and um, I just wonder if like that how much stuff that would feel better if there was just like a 
stronger underpinning through it. That's the thing. It makes me feel like I'm really nitpicky because I think that it matters massively on your suspension of disbelief. So I'm like, yeah, of course, she can be like a crack car thief and an ace uh, getaway driver. But why is she got to be a Jedi as well? Like, why is she like flipping off of walls and like kicking people out windows and stuff like that. Oh, no, no, no. That stuff is awesome. Well, yes, exactly. It <laughs> is awesome. Some women are just like, that cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's because she is both cool and, crucially, the main character. Yeah, yeah. It's the plot armor you're talking about. But, like, the nail-bitingness that's throughout the entire film can get a bit tedious sometimes. Like, there's, like, on the smaller scale, like, all the slow-mo in every single car chase scene. But, like, on a, on a wider scale, there's a bit where, like, the crime boss is like, oh, I've just learned she steals the cars that she uses. That's how she gets access to cars. She steals them. So uh, put an inquiry into any reports of car theft. <laughs> and then we cut to the next scene, which is about 10 seconds long of her stealing a car. Then we cut to a different scene with the crime boss where he's like, oh, I've just learned there's been a car theft reported. We've got her. So it's like, I get it. They're on each other's heels the whole time. And it's just not very convincing. Well, like, no, you misunderstand. The crime boss had the script. So he <laughs> could tell where they were going to be and where she was going to steal the car. Yeah, like maybe I'm being nitpicky. But the atmosphere is great. Mm. And, and, and Park Sodam is so cool. The outfits, the, the attitude. And she's not as like, you know, one-dimensional as other driving uh, action film mm -hmm. stars. Like she, she smiles a lot and she makes like positive connections with the characters. So you kind of feel like, oh... I hope that person doesn't get killed, or oh no, this person's in peril. They likely, um, they likely would. And the soundtrack killed. pops off. <laughs> it does. Yeah, um, I did laugh out loud at the ending, but if you know anything about the tropes of this kind of film, the ending is what you would expect it to be. Mm -hmm. Would you but say that great. special delivery delivers? <sighs> <laughs> Sorry, so I didn't mean for that to be on mic. They won't stop is the thing. Yeah. That was my last one, I promise. So um, Special Delivery is on at the Edinburgh Film Festival on Thursday the 18th, which is the day this podcast comes out, at 9.35pm. And it's also on Friday the 19th at 4.20. Both of those are at the Omni Centre. And then it comes out on digital platforms on the 22nd of August. Thank you so much for joining us, Rory Reynolds. Not my name. It's not, it's not your name. Roy Rounds is a guy who used to work with the Scotsman like 10 years ago. So, so if he's here... So the thing about... And he's here with us tonight. The thing about him is that he ended up going to work at a newspaper, I think in Abu Dhabi. And every so often I would just see this guy I used to work with in like Holyrood Road would just be posting like property news from Abu Dhabi. And I give off must a convincing enough energy of person who posts what you're all come news. here for tonight. <laughs> just Thank a descent into your mind. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rory Doherty. Hey! We are now going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, Jamie will be back to talk to the fantastic animator, director, and all-round good egg, Will Anderson. So we'll be back with that in a minute. Thank you very much. Well, Will Anderson has been making short films for about 12 years now, some of the most inventive, funny, interesting on the short film scene. Um, he's made a film called uh, The Making of Lombard, which is about his challenge with one of his creations, a, a very cheeky bird. Yeah. Uh, he made a film about a monkey who wants to go to space. He made Betty, which is about two ducks who are going through a really terrible breakup. And now he's got another creature feature, um, uh, a cat called Dom, which is playing at uh, Edinburgh in the Michael Pell competition. Oh, sorry, the Pell and Pressburger competition. Um, well, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you for that introduction. I thought it was great. Didn't, you didn't need. You didn't need to. You didn't need to have it written down. 
Yeah, I'm here with uh, A Cat Called Dom, which is a weird film. It's uh, eight years in the making. Documentary about my mother when she got cancer, which, uh, you know, when, when you know, we have this disease, cancer, you kind of tense up and you don't know how to talk about it. This film's kind of about how terrible I was at dealing with it. And instead, because I'm an animator, I kind of used animation to kind of speak to her. Because I, I feel like my work kind of, she always kind of found them funny, like the little characters, like the little Glaswegian seagull who like gets a job and like, like likes playing football. And like Longbird, who's like this arrogant, you know, Russian actor that's kind of in my head. It's like, it was like she kind of, she kind of like, it really talked to her. And, it, and I guess I wanted to make a film that like said th those difficult things that you try to, you, that you want to say to each other when you think that you're going like, to lose someone. So it's kind of about being faced with my mother's mortality and just process it, really. The way I say it, though, and the way I've, way I've just described that, almost too candidly, it sounds awful. But it hopeful, <laughs> I'm hoping that it's quite funny as well. And, <laughs> you know, I, I can't see it anymore because it's just, you know, I've been making it for eight years. And I, I think particularly when you're an animator, you just, like, you obsess. And it's, the film's kind of about control as well. It's like trying to control, like, a cancerous thing. You know what I mean? That's, it's like, I can't see it anymore. So I don't know. But it did go down quite well. It was, it was on Saturday and people laughed at the right points. Most of them. Well, that's the thing. I'm not sure who all seen um, A Cat Called Dom yeah, yet. Has anybody uh, in the audience seen it yet? Round of applause. Ooh. We haven't seen it, but um, what I should say is, if you know Will's work, Will's obviously an animator, what might surprise you is A Cat Called Dom is actually mostly documentary. Mm -hmm. um, the animation part is actually just a small element of it. So can you talk about that, like moving to a different medium to tell the story? Yeah, the, I, think, I think me and so Ainsley, my co-director, we, we worked on it together. And we're very much in the film. Like We fight and fall out and break up, lots of breakups. Um, we always talk about... If, why something's animated, you know? And in this film, there's one animated element, which is this character, this cancerous cat. Um, but we're never really that bothered. We don't really like animation. We're never really that bothered about <laughs> making an animated, you know what I mean? It's just like, what's suitable? Like with monkey love experiments, it's like about this monkey. This was a short that we made. Uh, like, you know, it's about this monkey that wants to go to the moon and we shot it in summer hall where I work, but it's like, we were like, the only reason, like, this is going to come out wrong, but you know, if we could get a monkey to like act it, we would have done it. <laughs> like, but like, obviously there's ethical problems with that. But you know, but like, it's just suitable to like stop frame animator because he's a, he's a stop frame animator. I'm a digital animator, so I kind of stick it all together. This film's actually, it's, it's all digital, but it's more like what, what does, what does the idea call for? And just because it's a film that's very personal about my terrible communication skills with my family, it felt like, oh, well, it's a documentary. But the weird thing about it is we tried to make it into a fiction film uh, where we were like acting and it just didn't work. So the film is messy. It like, it, it, like explodes and like the edit stops working and the, the color grade turns off, which was quite, tricky to like convince the color grader to actually ungrade something you know but you know you know he came around to it but it's yeah it's 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 a weird one i think i think sorry i've been you were going to ask me something i can't stop talking no um, go for it well i think you described it to me as a kind of 
failure, but it's kind of a glorious failure that kind of explores how films work and how they're kind of phony. You know, like yeah. like trying to make a film about such an emotional thing is is going to be phony because you have to ask your mum who's going through this yeah. terrible time to kind of reenact her trauma and you're reenacting your own trauma. Yeah. Um, Ainsley's reenacting his issues he has with you. You fight in the film, so yeah. it's, it's all kind of it's a lot. There's a lot of acting, but it's all kind of coming from a real place. So how was that? Yeah, I, I think I think that I think in our pitch, you know, what I mean, which changed a lot uh, over the years. We were like, it's a film about failure, like and uh, like accepting failure, and you know, actually finding you know more closeness through like accepting that. You know, we don't do things right; we get things wrong. But um, what was the question again? Well, I was just—I was just saying, how was it actually acting? Because you're, you're, you're in I'm the awful. film. You're, you're the main character. Yeah, I know. It's, it's again because it's like, oh, this is a film that didn't work, and I kind of deconstruct it. It's a bit like uh, a director's commentary is left on, and I just keep speaking over it. Expl we call it Explainsley Henderson. My co-director is <laughs> Ainsley Henderson. So I, when we over, ex you know, explain things, we call it Explainsley Henderson. So it's like explaining everything. You know, it's like, oh God, just let people breathe. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, people are smarter. But that's kind of how we built it. We built it like, oh, it just let's just tell people what what we're trying to do instead of like skirting around the subject, and then we pull it back, which you know. I don't know. I, just, I don't know if it works, but I like it. Seemed to, you know. I hope you get to see it. Well, this, you this is, tell me. This isn't the first time you've worked through your own kind of personal issues in a film, because like Betty as well was that was about a breakup. It was about a breakup, yeah. Um, you know, so as is it because like I guess as an animator, you, you know, when an animator is God, aren't they? They yeah. they they have complete control over the canvas. Do you feel like God making films? Do, do, yeah, does, do you feel like by making a film about it, does it give you a bit more um, autonomy? Does, does it give you a chance to kind of, you know, make things better? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. You know, I, like, we're such a quiet family, and, you know, they're there. It's like, it's basically a letter to my mother telling her that I love her. Because, you know, I, and, you know, it's, some people are really good at saying that. You know what I mean? And some people have really great relationships with their family. I don't have bad relationships with my family, but we're not the kind of family that says, oh, I love you. I don't think we've ever said it. So, like, it, I say it in the film, and it's just, like, charged. But, yeah, it's, it's a, there's a catharsisism in kind of going over and over things, because the film kind of rewinds and, like, fast-forwards and, like, kind of explodes. And it's like, it's like going over and over it to try and make sense out of something I just couldn't get my head around, which is just, like... She's gonna die. It's like, but she didn't. She's alive, and she fought, she fought it. She fought it, which is wonderful. But you know, it. it I, I, I think as well, it was like we started it like, oh, we're gonna make a film about cancer, but it actually, it's just the trigger to like talk about. Well, you, you guys don't. You know, it's it's about communication and control. You know, so like, it, as soon as we kind of realized that, it was like, oh, we probably realized that like only a year ago. That's why, you know, the, the other seven years was kind of uh, ticking over. But. And can you talk about the animated element? So the animated element is this little black cat who kind of kind of materialises on your laptop from this little... Yeah, like, it's a bit like Clippy. Remember Clippy? <laughs> it's that little guy that came out. I like Clippy. Yeah, yeah I always saw him as a bit, as a bit like Clippy. But, um, yeah, so is it, is it your conscience? Is he yeah, your... I think so. I think he's the... We always describe it described Dom as like the child in the room that says the really awkward thing at the dinner table about someone who 
passed away or something. You know, that weird voice in your head that doesn't kind of understand things. Like, and just, yeah. And it just, and what we liked in terms of like, I don't know if we did this well, but what we liked the idea of is that the kind of lifespan of the film is his lifespan. So it's like, he starts like a baby and just is like singing and dancing and wants to write poetry. And like, and he's really shit at it. Like, uh, he writes this poetry and it's like, and then we kind of weave that into the story. But then by the end of it, he's kind of grown and he's kind of ready to go, you know? Because it's sort of, yeah, it's it sort of grows alongside my mum's cancer and it sort of shrinks away at the end. It doesn't ruin it, I don't think. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely that voice in your head. Well, the thing is, I mean, the central subject, you know, about your... Yeah, it's a big taboo. It's your parents' mortality. It's about cancer, which is, you know, like you say, whenever you hear the word, uh, you know, it's sort of, mm, yeah, it, 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 it's a, a thing you run away from. Yeah. Um, but what I should say is your film is also incredibly funny, and all your films kind of walk that line of being sort of mixing the comic with the tragic. So, yeah. Yeah, like, how do you how do you manage that? What's... Me and Nain talk a lot of shit. Like, you know, we just, like, uh, we we do a lot of, like, uh, Dialogue-driven things, and it's normally birds. We're we're two pigeons, and um, we do a lot of stuff for BBC Scotland. We did a lot of stuff for BBC Scotland, and they were kind of in it as well. So it's, I think it's just like we just make we just do it to make ourselves laugh, you know. And it's like, and if we think you know it's awful, we think we're so funny, we don't. But you know, if we're finding something actually funny and we like can't hold it together, it's like oh well, it's probably a little bit funny then. So yeah, we just try to get that in, and it's like I think I always think that it's it's hard being an adult and being like it's about play. It's like we we forget how to play, and I just like the idea that we can just keep playing and just having a laugh. But then it, it it's a funny one because it like it does change. Like I think in the film, the experiment of the film, I think, is that it starts, and for maybe twenty minutes, it's kind of fifteen minutes. It's probably quite funny, but then it kind of stops being. I'm like, I'm curious about that. Like, is that okay? Do, do people like that? You know, and Longbird was like that. So you don't know what the, the film's kind of about until about five minutes in. And if for a short, it's quite a long time. But it's, you know, I mean, it's, they're almost like experiments. It's a real experiment, this film, I think. Um, you described it as a love letter to your mum, or a letter to your mum. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and obviously, thankfully, your mum fought cancer and she's in remission. Uh, how did she feel watching it? She, what she said to you? I think I was terrified, to be honest. I, I was, you know, I wasn't terrified about showing it because I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy with it. I was just terrified that they were there. It's like, you know, it's like my, my family. It's like, oh, my mum and my dad. It's like, wow. My dad's so quiet as well. I'm actually quite quiet as well, like, you know, normally. But, um, yeah, I, it was weird. But I think they like it. I think they, they got it. Um, I'd love to have because we were up the front, I would love to have watched them watch it. It's like, you know, just see the reaction. But you got, you got a f I got a feeling that they enjoyed it, I think. So, thank God. Well, you could just recreate it as you do in the film, recreate scenes of them watching this film. That's, that's part two, sure. Yeah, it just gets meta, meta. It's so meta anyway. I say in the film, I'm like, there's layers, there's like so many layers. Oh my God. It's like, it would just get too meta, man. It's like, there's another layer. We don't need another layer. Well, it's a totally brilliant film, full of layers, full of emotion, uh, very funny. Um, Will and Ainsley are massive talents, um, and it's really great to see you making a feature. It's really great to see you in the Michael, uh, the Pell and Pressburg Award, so best yeah. luck with that.
Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just can we thank uh, Will for coming along? Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I forgot to say, there is one more opportunity to see Will's film. Um, it's playing again at Filmhouse on Friday. Will? What, what? At seven o'clock. Uh, yeah, in, in the wee cinema. It's like Filmhouse 3. Okay, so it's the wee cinema. It probably will sell out, so get your ticket. It's amazing. And uh, yeah, please see it. Great. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, so one more film to get through, not get through, one more film to enjoy. <laughs> one more fun bit of content for everybody. Um, so the last film we're gonna talk about is the new film from Peter Strickland. It is Flux Gourmet, uh, which is, it follows a kind of group of musicians taking a residency at an institute that's dedicated to culinary and sonic performance. That residency is being overseen by the terrifying Jan Stevens, who's the director of the institute, and it's all being charted by Stones, who is a writer employed by the Institute to document the goings-on, but he has a very upset tummy. Uh, it's got Fatma Mohammed, Ariane Labed, Asa Butterfield off of Sex Education, Gwendolyn Christie off of Game of Thrones, and Makis Papadimitru as Stones. Uh, we're about to be joined by, joined on this one by Jamie, Anahit, and the fantastic Carmen Paddock. So, round of applause for them. We all sat down too far apart at the break. Um, so this film is very, very odd and quite messy in most senses of the word. Anahita, I might come to you first because the top note on the document that we all share is uh, the phrase, this film is a case against performance art. Like it really fucking Elaborate. is <laughs> Oh, I just found this really frustrating and I feel really bad because I think Jamie was really excited <laughs> about it. <laughs> and I'm really sorry. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> I've never seen a Peter Strickland film before. Um, and that's my bad as a film critic. And so maybe if you have and you're kind of coming at it from that context, then you have, I don't know, a case for it, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's very... It feels like it's doing like a kind of pastiche or like a kind of satire of performance art. But it does that by being like, this is very annoying. But it does that by being annoying itself. And I don't really know if that works as satire. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what like fucking Molière or whatever intended. It feels like a cross between, like when I was watching it, it feels a bit like cross between Yogos Lanthimos, um, who did like, um, oh my God, my brain, everything's gone. He did the, the lobster. lobster and like the souvenir. No, not the souvenir, the other one, the favorite. Thank you. <laughs> Nouns. Um, and then the, this person that we all trained ourselves how to say, and I might mispronounce it, but Lucille Hadzihalilovich, who did like Earwig and Innocence and the, yeah, the recent Earwig, and that we also did a podcast episode about. And so it has this kind of like surrealism, like deadpan tone to it. Like it has her like very quite like grotesque, like the sounds of people like eating and chewing and just like bodies being like truly so disgusting. And then here's like absurdism. And that is really interesting, um, but it doesn't really feel like it has a point to all of that. Whereas theirs do, I can feel Jamie's like rage. I'm so sorry. It feels very vague, very meandering. 
Asa Butterfield has like this flock of seagulls haircut, which is very funny. Um, I don't think someone told him that he's not on the set of Sex Education because he is just playing his character from Sex Education, but in these increasingly like bizarre scenarios. So that was fun. Um, but otherwise, I, I did not like it. I'm so sorry. But I feel like that's my bad. I feel bad about that, you know. Uh, Carmen, what did you think of it? So um, when Jamie asked me to review Flux Gourmet for The Skinny and to come on the podcast, I immediately sat down and binge-watched Peter Strickland's other three films um, in advance because I was like, I've got to know everything. I've got to be an expert now. <laughs> and I don't know if... I mean, I liked all of them. I saw uh, Barbarian Sound Studio um, in Fabric and Duke of Burgundy and then watched Flux Gourmet. Um... What I kind of got out of that was that Peter Strickland is a director with a very lovely, weird universe that he's just putting all of his favorite people in and all of his weird dialogue and having a great time. And in an age of kind of whitewashed blockbuster cinema, I really, really appreciate that. Um, I feel like I feel like I read somewhere that Peter Strickland based this film off his own experience doing some weird performance art. And it's hard to make a case for performance art in film because it is such a self-indulgent genre, but I feel like it's very, it's done with love here. They're doing these ridiculous things and it's very decadent. I'm think, I think like, well, they do talk about financiers and like how they're gonna get their art to kind of out in the world. It's also a case of, this is not what food is meant for. You're supposed to eat it and cook it and enjoy it. Um, but then you've got a cast of people who are so committed to this world. Gwendolyn Christie is just magnificent. She's got this regal bearing and very distinct pronunciation and outfits are like what she wears on the runway in real life. So maybe it was just her wardrobe. I love it. <laughs> and uh, Fatima, Fatima Muhammad gets finally a bigger role than she has in some of the past Peter Strickland films. And she kind of goes toe to toe with Christie, which is lovely to watch. And then Asa Butterfield is there just being really <laughs> earnest and probably just in a different film with that really ridiculous haircut. Um, I think for me, it might've been a little bit too removed from reality. I think some of Strickland's other films kind of engage with the world outside his bubble in quite an interesting way, especially in fabric. But I had a good time. So, yeah, over to you. Yeah, I was going to say that that uh, band that Peter Strickland used to be in was in the 90s. It was called the Sonic Catering Band. And I actually saw them perform uh, in Manchester in 2015. It was awful. It was, like, so bad. And uh, it was, like, the most ridiculous, pretentious thing you've ever seen. Uh, and Peter Strickland admits that. He says it's like a daft idea. But, um, I, you know, just God bless Peter Strickland because he's a man who's working through his little kinks and obsessions and he's just making the films that he wants to make. I don't know how to describe them. I, I guess they're not, they don't follow kind of the conventional narrative rules. They're much more like a, a immersing you in an atmosphere. And that atmosphere is weird. It's like a Hammer horror film mixed with a carry-on movie. It's got very, it's very kind of like embedded in like the traditions of British weirdness. You know, you know British TV from the seventies. If you ever watch it, like Forty Towers and stuff like that, those are weird movies. We are weird people. The British, <laughs> the people in the British Isles. Yes. And Peter Strickland really gets that. Um, He's also obsessed with sound. He's like uh, his previous, one of his earlier films, um, and I think his best film, uh, *Barbarian Sound Studio*, which also played at EIFF, was about a foley artist who um, is making a film in Italy, a horror film, and he uses vegetables to recreate all the like bashings of heads and stabbings and things. So he's really interested in 
like fruit and sound. I, I don't know why he's obsessed with this, <laughs> but it's I found it fascinating. These kind of like uh, watching this performance, I found uh, yeah, just mesmerizing. Um, and and like you say, he's just creating a world that's a little bit different from ours. It's a world where a three-piece avant-garde music band who make music with sound are going to be given lots of money and taken to this massive institution where they're going to be have adoring fans who have orgies with them after after the show you know this is peter strickland having his fantasy this is what he clearly wanted to do in the 90s when he was in this band to have orgies with all his fans and now he's getting to really do it in uh, real life so i you know all all you know Give it to him. He's, he's, he's making interesting stuff. Um, Peter. <laughs> the, thing I, the thing I thought about it is that it's like an art house spinal tap, right? So it's like very kind of like, it's quite pretentious. And like, obviously the band are supposed to be like kind of pretentious sound art idiots. It's like the structure of it is very strange. It uses a lot of narrative crutches, like interviews with each of the bandmates individually and like very clearly delineated chapters to make up for the fact there isn't really much going on story-wise. But the way it's pitched, it's so kind of like melodramatic. The director of the Institute is called Jan Stevens. And you know, because anytime anyone sees her, she gets full named. It's like, <gasps> Jan Stevens. It's like, <laughs> um, characters go around saying things like they're concerned about their hopeless inability to say no to people. Or they talk about how the band works because misunderstandings between us are the key to our sound. All the while, Stones, who is like the... Uh, the guy documenting this whole residency is just sitting in the back of shot, trying desperately to hold in a toot. It's like, it's this really strange, like, odd, unexpected vibe. Uh, but what I will say, massive, completely unqualified, no notes support for Gwendolyn Christie. This wardrobe, right, it's like a cross between Lady Gaga, Mr. Blobby, and like a 16th century Harlequin from the Commedia <laughs> della Arte. She's in the bed and she's wearing this like all in one headscarf down to like massive padded shoulders thing. And one thing actually is, so we didn't see this at the film festival. We got sent an advanced copy of it because we're cool. Uh, but the copy, the first copy they sent, the uh, narration is all in Greek and there were no subtitles. <laughs> So, so we sent that one back. Um, and then the second copy they sent through looked like it had been record encoded on a potato. <laughs> These orgy scenes, it was like watching four pixels try to fuck each other. <laughs> So you're trying to look at these, like, at these costumes and be like, is that a headpiece or is the hair just weird? Which really added to the kind of, it did give that kind of like Scarfolk type vibe to it, which I think maybe was Peter Strickland's intention. So if that's what he's going for, fair play, got me. Uh, and one other thing is like, despite everything we've said, I would absolutely go and see this band of like discordant sound artists trying to make sound collages with soup. Just, <laughs> just the principle of the thing. If someone's doing that, I'll check it out. Will I enjoy it? No. But should they be allowed to do it? Probably. I, I think if MD in here makes art or is a filmmaker or an artist, they will love this because it's really great about the creative process and the kind of impossibility of artistic collaboration between artists and financiers. You know, how they are... Because Gwen Lucas's character, she constantly puts her oar in. She wants to tell this band what to do and they do not want to do it and like I think MD it's, it's clearly Peter Strickland has been in this position this is a man who makes weird films he's had some 
producer at BFI tell him you can't put that in a film and he is getting his own back by casting them as Gwendolyn Christie. So I think if you are a filmmaker or an artist in any way, you will enjoy this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also... Um, it's also yeah, it's a satire of the creative process. It's this, it's, a, uh, it's the, the, there's three members of the band. One of them leads the band, but they actually can't play any instruments. It's like a, so I, I kind of see her as the kind of director character because obviously a director relies on a technical team to bring his vision alive, and without your cinematographer, without your editor, he's nothing. And that's I think what the film's about. It's about how. Um, to make art, you have to collaborate, and it's the, it's the struggle of that. So it's actually, it's a film, uh, for all its uh, weirdness and quirks, I think it's a film that's trying to say something about making art. And it's also saying, you know, when you really need to hold in a fart and you're embarrassed to let it go, it's, it's really horrible. So it's also, it's, all, it's also the melancholy of flatulence, basically. There are many layers to this film. <laughs> Is what we're saying. Uh, uh, Carmen, final thoughts? Or do we want to stick on the melancholy of flatulence? <laughs> Honestly, like, that is... That's a big part of this film. And um, I am kind of embarrassed to admit, this the first time I watched it, I did watch the screener with the no subtitles, and I was like, this is just the way the film is meant to be. <laughs> this is just the artistic vision. And then I found out there were going to be subtitles and felt very stupid. Um, but I do think a lot of the melancholy still comes through. Even if you don't know what he's saying, you watch him standing in the back of the room just looking really, really uncomfortable. And just in the back of shots, where, like, I think there was one scene where Wendell and Christ Christy was just laying into the band trying to get them to go with her vision and poor stones is in the back just like fidgeting slightly and uh, my heart just went out for him so yeah um maybe not my favorite peter strickland but i will absolutely watch the next thing he does i would say it's maybe his most accessible like i think all his other films are they're more surreal i would say this is like i would say this is maybe the easiest one to get on with i would say i, I don't know if anybody disagrees with that but yeah but it's also really funny so i i, I enjoyed it <laughs> there are many schools of thoughts. <laughs> Made so, best end at that. Yeah. So Flux Gourmet <laughs> uh, had its UK premiere at EIFF, and if you're intrigued, confused, or just want to see what people making strange art out of liver looks like, um, it's out in UK cinemas from the 30th of September. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Carmen Paddock. And I think that's about it. We did it. Jamie gestured for me. To come I, I thought on. I thought we might be saying goodbye. We call. are saying goodbye. <laughs> but but Lewis was yeah. hello. <laughs> okay, we did it. Just about. So we got a massive list of thank yous to get through. We want to firstly thank the EIFF for their support on this. We want to thank Curate It for sponsoring tonight's event. We want to thank Codebase for giving us the space. Hamish, round of applause for Hamish for doing the sound. <laughs> Uh, thanks to Tom and Christian from The Skinny for doing all the setup and doing the logistics. Uh, thanks to Will Anderson for coming down and talking to us about the film. Uh, go and see A Cat Called Dom. It's very good. Yes. Uh, thanks to our three guest reviewers, Carmen Paddock, Rory Docherty, and uh, Chun Lin Tam. Thanks to them. A round of applause for them. Great. And uh, thanks as well to Edinburgh Gin and to Bounce Back for providing the drinks for tonight. They were lovely. <laughs> they got warmer as the night went on. Um, and I think it just remains for me to say thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you, Anahit. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jamie. Cheers, Peter. And that this has been The Cine Skinny. If you enjoyed it, then tell people what you saw here today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
or leave us a good review on iTunes. They basically work out the same. Um, and sh be sure to subscribe to the pod. Listen, you'll have a fun time. Uh, our next episode will be out in two weeks' time. But have a lovely evening and a good rest of the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Thank you all for coming. Good night. Bye. Bye. <laughs>